0: Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is the show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. This is the second episode of 2016, and I think it's a story that you are going to love. Uh, The interview is with a guy who bootstrapped a business and went on to sell it for $43 million. Uh, But like episode 101 with Aaron Fulkerson of MindTouch, this wasn't an overnight success story either. It took my guest over 20 years to build the company to a point where he could sell it. And if you're looking for a new startup idea, then I think this story might inspire you. Because great ideas are everywhere. You just need to keep an open mind and find problems that need a solution. In this case, my guest started up a conversation with a neighbor who he'd never spoken to before. And from that short conversation, they had the idea for a business and eventually became co-founders. It's a great story. All right. Today's guest is an entrepreneur and startup advisor. His previous company, Definitive Home Care Solutions, provided a software product for the home infusion pharmacy industry called CPR+. He and his co-founder started the business with just $400 and went on to sell it for $43 million dollars. But this wasn't an overnight success story. It took them over 20 years to build and sell that business. And they also had two failed attempts trying to sell the company before they were successful with an exit. We're going to talk about the successes, failures, and challenges of that 20-year journey, and the lessons learned to help inspire you to keep going with your startup. So today, I'd like to welcome Stuart Crane. Stuart, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks for having me, Omer. All right. So let's start by um uh you know I like to ask my guests what uh what gets them out of bed in the mornings. What's uh, do they have a favorite quote or or what drives them? So is there a quote that resonates with you?
1: Well, there there's a quote that uh, I really uh, latched onto when I was very young, right out of college. Um, I, I did a lot of listening to um, the motivational speakers back then, like Tony Robbins and Dennis Whateley and Brian Tracy. And Jim Rohn um, had a philosophy. It wasn't really a quote, but it was a philosophy that kind of hit me hard. And uh, the quote is, uh, set a goal to become a millionaire, but not for the money, but set a goal to become a millionaire for what it will make of you. And I listened to that when he was he was talking about that. I'm like, why would I set a goal to be a millionaire not for the money? And um, I didn't get it really at all. But I listened to Jim Rohn a lot of years. And um, over the course of building my business and um, really earning a lot of money, it, it really resonated with me. And it does make a huge difference in your life. Uh, by setting a goal to become a millionaire, it really makes something of you that's totally different than prior to that. So it's a, it's a neat goal I think about quite a bit. And um, so that kind of got me out of bed, you know, when I was building my businesses, oh, I want to make my business successful and be a success and become a millionaire and see what it would make of me. So that got me out of bed when when we were building the business.
0: That's, a, that's an interesting quote. I've never heard that before. So give me an example of something um, that setting a goal like that made of you other than the money.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think... You know, in order to become a millionaire and to have a, a successful software company where you have a lot of customers and they're, it's bringing in a lot of revenue and you're, and you're basically doing it um, in a bootstrap mode like we did. It, it takes a lot of time that you talked about a little bit in, in your intro. And, and over that time, you learn a lot of things about what works in a software business, what doesn't work, what customers need. And you as a person really begin to build confidence and um, and critical thinking skills, and you get more engaged with what is happening and it does change you uh, dramatically. When you're building this, this business and then when it's really taking off and bringing in a lot of money, um, then you can see what you can do with the money, not just personally because there's obviously a lot of things you can do with money personally, but with the business. Uh, as more money comes in, you think about how you can leverage that to get more customers and grow the business. And then it gets into the whole uh, world of hiring employees and how you help them and your customers. And we can talk about that a little bit, but it does change you quite a bit.
0: Okay, so let's uh, travel back to I guess it was sometime in the '80s that you 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 must have started this business. Um, Where did the idea for this software product come from?
1: Okay, it does start back in the late '80s um, when I was a consultant to a number of companies here in Columbus, Ohio. Doing mostly database management work. Now you can imagine in the late 80s there was no internet, there was there was no Windows. It was basically a lot of uh, a lot of mainframe stuff, but also the personal computer was getting big, and a lot of client-server applications were coming out. And that was my expertise was database management for client-server applications where PCs were proliferating, and then databases would hold information. So I had a lot of projects going on in Columbus, and the interesting thing about the start of the business, this was actually about 1990, 1991, is um, I moved into a house and uh, on just a regular old residential street and my backyard neighbor, I would see him out there every so often raking leaves and I would be out there once in a while and for probably six or seven months never really met him. And then one day we just... You know, we happened to be out there at the same time, shook hands. And, you know, what is the first thing you do when you meet your neighbor is you ask him, well, what do you do for a living or what do you do? And my neighbor, Jeff, a uh, backyard neighbor, was a nurse for a home care company, specifically home care pharmacy. And this was um, actually a, a division of our largest hospital here in Columbus. And he was doing all of the patient management, patient tracking, going out to people's homes, patients' homes, and doing – basically helping them with their intravenous medication, with their infusion medications. So, um, this company that he worked for, which was part of a hospital, would essentially – get drugs uh, from the manufacturers and the suppliers, and they would make them in in the pharmacy because it wasn't pills. These were intravenous medications. And then they would go out to the homes of the patients and do what's called um, IV uh, hookups. And um, it was a kind of a niche business, but it was actually bigger than you would think it was because there's a lot of patients that needed – what's called home infusion therapy. Instead of getting pills and just being able to take them, they needed this infusion, this intravenous medication. So, these companies are out there doing that. And he had such a tough time documenting all the information that he had to document about the patient. You know, you had to use these paper forms where you take them off the shelf and write their name, address, city, state, zip, and their demographics and Social Security and then all their medical information, all the treatment plans and the care plans and the medical information, what drugs they were taking. It was just an enormous amount of documentation. So, um, you know, he told me about that and what he did and he said, what do you do? And I said, well, I write database management systems for companies (laughs) here in Columbus. And he's like, oh, my gosh, I've been looking for software to help us automate or at least just document all of this information that we have to do uh, for our patients. And he said, sometimes these patients and the patients are a lot of times they're elderly and they have cancer or AIDS and they that's why they're getting intravenous meds. And they're so sick. A lot of times these patients, some of them would die before he would have a chance to do the documentation all by hand. So, he wow. was like, it's just, it was just crazy. So, he was using are trying to use WordPerfect, if you remember WordPerfect I back do. in the day. Yeah, and to basically pull up a document there and put information in, try to have it line up and fill out forms and then save it as a different patient. And there were really was no uh, software available for his kind of business. Um, there was some billing software, a little bit of pharmacy software, but nothing for the patient documentation. So anyway, first thing, you know, We did when we met really was start talking about this possible software project, which was to take all these forms that they were using at their company and turn them into essentially screens in a software program and then printouts. On the laser because tr- the laser jet was just getting really big back then, the laser jet printers, HP laser jets, and so that the printouts would be beautiful and so forth. So we talked about it. and then literally within that week, um, I went into his offices uh, with his boss and we sat down and just kind of talked through what I could do for them. And it had nothing to do with you know, starting a company or anything like, like that. It was really just let's build this software program custom for what you need for your documentation. So again, it was, like I said, 90, 91, I think by this time that we kicked off this project. And I began writing the software in a program called FoxPro. Uh, Microsoft Fox, Fox Pro for DOS uh, there was no Windows back then, and I was very familiar with this uh, this application development uh, language just because I'd been using it a lot at a number of different uh, companies in Columbus and it really allowed you to build an app back then that wasn 't called an app but a software program from start to finish where you could install it on a PC you could bring up screens, you can enter information, store it in a database, print things out and close it out and it also had networking capabilities so you could have a centralized database and uh, have multiple PCs access the data. And back then, in 1990, that that was really a big deal, and people were or companies were starting to see the capabilities there. Um, this is before even the internet was you know really available to people. So we did that. We built a very basic um, database management software program for his company or you know the hospital essentially that he was working for. And we put it on one computer in kind of a corner office uh, and basically the nurses and some of the pharmacists, but mostly the nurses who had to do this documentation because there was about eight or ten of them. And they would come and sit down at the computer, and it was green screen, monochrome, IBM, PC, I think it was a 386, and they would enter their uh, information into the screens and hit the print button, and the laser jet would print these beautiful forms out, and then they would take them and put them into What's called patient charts. And these charts were essentially paper-based and everything was still paper-based, but what it allowed them to do was create a paper chart that looked beautiful and they could basically update the information as it changed rather than having another piece of paper and scratch things out and, and, and that sort of thing. So go ahead.
0: So at this point, y- you said it wasn't about starting a business. So was this more like a, a a consulting gig where you were just Providing
1: a, a service to this company? Yes, exactly correct, Omer. I basically engaged with the hospital my standard hourly rate to build software, and I had those um, these agreements or these engagements with other companies in Columbus. It was pretty straightforward. It was just me basically um, engaging my services with them for an hourly rate, and we just built it. Essentially, I would work in the day, but really my partner and I or my, my, uh, my friend, my neighbor and I, Jeff, would basically work on nights and weekends because he was working in the day. And then once it got installed, we would talk a lot in the day and uh, I would come into the office and install updates using a three and a half inch floppy. But, but yeah, it was, it was essentially a contract, uh, programming job.
0: Okay. So I I guess the question for me is like, how did, how did that become a business? And were there any kind of IP issues around who owned the source code for this product that you had built?
1: Exactly. So here, here's the next step: is it went so well for the next eh, probably six, seven, eight months? I don't have a exact time frame, but it went so well that uh, we put the the application on all the computers. They bought all computers for everybody on their desks, and we networked it, and they started using it in a network environment, had shared laser printers, and they were walking around going, oh my gosh, how did we operate? How did we work without this software program? It's just transformed our whole business because it's it's so much better. It was just revolutionary to them back then. So, you know, as time went on, Jeff uh, basically you know, he's, he's very entrepreneurial himself, even though he was just working for a hospital, he was, he was young and, and engaged and everything. He's like, Stuart, we could take this program that, that you, essentially you've written, but I knew nothing about what it needed to do. So it was essentially half his idea or half his program and half mine, I just coded it. And he said, we could take this. And there are thousands of not tens of thousands but thousands of other companies around the country some of them are hospital-based some of them are private uh, mom-and-pop but they're they're out there that do this exact same thing which is to provide specialty drugs and infusion drugs to patients in the home and they if we don't have something we being his hospital if, if the hospital didn't have anything that did this He's, he was convinced that they didn't have that because he had been doing a search, you know, for, for the software. So I said, Hey, I, you know, I was very entrepreneurial too. I had my own business doing consulting and, uh, and that sort of thing. I was engaged, I was so immersed in, you know, learning about business and, and that sort of thing. I'm like, yeah, let's start, let's start a business that does that and sells it to them. So, and then you had a good question also about the, um, the, the, the information, the, the intellectual property and the ownership of it, you know, the first thing we had to do was get an attorney to take a look at, you know, how the product was developed developed and and what the ownership uh, rights are. So as it turned out, and this took this took probably two or three months or more, as it turned out, there was no work for hire where I had signed any document with the hospital that said that they own the product. So by default, uh, the way um, intellectual property ownership uh, works is that the creator of the product by default owns the product. So we had some documents drafted up. That we had the hospital sign that said that we owned that, you know, just to have that, um, you know, in writing. But then also, they became our first customer, and uh, we sold the product to them for one dollar, and basically said that we would maintain it if they would uh, basically be our first customer and pay a very nominal uh, maintenance fee or a uh, maintenance agreement. So um, on April first of nineteen ninety three. We formed definitive home care solutions officially got you know the vendor's license and all that we that was the official first day of business that said, "Okay, we now have a product that we're going to sell to other home infusion companies all across the country now we weren't going international they really the way healthcare is, and and even to this day, it's it's very much uh, US-based because there's so many differences in other countries. So we were focused on not just Columbus and not just this hospital, but the entire country, any company, uh, pharmacy that basically did the same uh, business, which was home infusion therapy, we were going to try to reach out and show them the product and sell it to them. And our initial price was $4,996. It was $4 less than $5,000. That was our our price for purchasing the software. And um, i can get into how we do that.
0: Yeah, so sorry to interrupt. I'm curious why you charged the hospital just $1 um, when you were sort of valuing this Right. much higher. Uh, was, yeah, that a, me, was that a sweetener to get them to agree
1: no, to- No, and I did kind of skip over this part, but uh, you know, if you, if you may recall, you probably don't, but this is quite a while back, but in 1992, when uh, George H.W. Bush was in office, there was a pretty major recession that hit the United States. It's a big recession if you look back at the stock market and a lot of things. And and it just happened to a lot of the companies cut back on a lot of expenditures in the hospital for whatever reason you know for that reason essentially but they decided we are not going to basically pay for any consulting work um any longer so it was basically cut from 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 the budget my time and we were like well that's okay because you know we are basically going to create a company um, and we'll basically sell it to you for one dollar and we just wanted their blessing you know obviously you know get the ownership rights but we kind of had that anyway but we wanted their blessing is that we have a really good sized good customer that then when we go out to market so and you know it wasn't like we it would be nice to have five thousand dollars from them but literally within a few weeks we found a few other customers that, that, that did uh, that did pay the full price and we and we basically started the company like you said in the opening of the show here we started the company with four hundred dollars, I put in two hundred dollars, and Jeff put in two hundred dollars, and we opened a business checking account uh, with four hundred dollars, and that was our our seed capital essentially. And then within about a month or so, we sold our first system for for five thousand dollars. But the, the guy only gave us half of that because he wanted to see how it went, and we were like, "That's fine." So we got twenty five hundred dollars in our bank account plus the four hundred, and then um, you know we we basically kind of ran from there. And this was still around the time of the recession that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it 90, 93, kind of the recession started to slow down or, or started, you know, the economy started to pick up in 93 and then into 94. Um, but but definitely the, and, and once the the hospital said, hey, we're kind of putting a halt on consulting, we weren't looking to them for any more money. We were just kind of wanted them to, to help us to build the program and get more capabilities into it as we um, were approaching other customers. So I think that's interesting because um,
0: maybe a lot of people would have looked at that and said, you know, this probably is the worst time to start a business in the middle of a recession. Um, Now, having said that, I think if you go back and look at history, a number of companies that started in a recession turned out to do really well. I mean, companies like Apple and Microsoft and Disney were all started in recessions, but
1: was that something that played on your minds at the time or? No, not, not at all. I mean, what we were thinking about, Omer, the entire time was what Jeff had identified, which is that there are thousands of companies out there that do exactly what, you know, he, they do. And they, love this program like you couldn't take it away from them and he was like i just know that they will pay uh you know five thousand ten thousand for this product there's just no doubt in my mind even with a recession they have to basically service their patients and what this does for them is worth every penny of that and more and you know he turned out to be correct that uh, the recession didn't really affect us too much and 92 90 early 93 is kind of when you know it hit and then it 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 just kind of like didn't really affect the the certainly not the healthcare Industry, I think a big hospital just kind of got a little paranoid and they said, oh, we're going to just take off doing consulting work and not pay that. But really, there was not much effect on healthcare overall. And we went through a lot of recessions. You think about starting the business in 93 and sell right. till 2013. You think about there's been a lot of dips, you know, over the years, 2001, the big crash and all that. But in 2009, you know, and uh, we, we got through those just fine. Okay, cool. So
0: you, uh, how were you going and uh, marketing the business, or were you just kind of going out and cold calling? And
1: what what were what were you doing to get these next few customers? Okay, so so I'll I'll walk you through what we did, and I just want your listeners to keep in mind the era that we're talking about. We're talking about nineteen ninety three, so there's no internet, okay, and there's no email. Really? I mean, there's email internally, but you can't reach people by email externally, really, not at businesses anyway. So, you, so- you know, the thing is, I, 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 I'm I, like you. I remember
0: those days very clearly and I think it show, shows our age. But I think it's fascinating now that you think about it, that there are there are actually um, entrepreneurs out there running companies who never knew of a world where there was no internet.
1: It's right. Kind of, oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's just a lot of entrepreneurs that are that way. And uh, so I just want to preface that as I d- describe and explain some of the marketing tactics and how we got customers and, and therefore, um, you know, really grew that this is, this is the situation we're dealing with, which we knew nothing. We knew nothing else anyway. So it was not like, Oh my God, we don't have the internet. How are we going to do this? Well, there was, there was no internet to know about. So right. anyway, <laughs> anyway, to your question, um, there were, let's see, th- two main ways, three main ways that we got customers. The very first thing we did, Omer, is now, even though there wasn't the internet, there was a thing called CompuServe and Prodigy and AOL was just getting going. But CompuServe was our key source to get lists of companies. And there was this thing, and it's still out there now, but it's called the SIC codes, the SIC codes. And they're essentially industry codes that categorize companies. And we would go on to uh, CompuServe, and we would download the uh, lists of companies by SIC code. And the SIC code we used was home care Um, I think it was home health care or home health agency. I'm not sure what it was, but it was as close as that we could get to our niche market, which was home infusion. There wasn't one for exactly home infusion. So, what we would do, and I would do a lot of this because it was kind of technical, is I would get down, I would get in there, get this data, and it was basically the name of the company, maybe a contact name, maybe not. Um, address, city, state, zip, phone. And there was no email or website, of course. And we would get this information. And then we would, Jeff would go through and say, out of these 800 companies, we would, we would pick maybe three or 400 of them that we thought would do home infusion. And then we did physical mailings, physical mailings. So what I'm talking about is a small packet of information that basically was a couple pages and then we would put it into, we would include a um, postage paid reply card in this in this little tiny packet of information. And what it was, Omer, was the actual printouts from our program, because that's really what shined on our program was the printouts, because they were used to doing paper charts. And we would say in this letter, there was a cover letter, and then the example printouts, we would say, would you like your home care documentation to look like this. And they would turn the page and then see it. And they were like, oh, my God, this is the most gorgeous thing I've ever seen. If our documents could look like this, they're charts. I mean, they had to have charts. So we would get these postage paid reply cards in the mail back to us after we would shoot out maybe 100, then 200 and 100 more and to different states. And uh, so in the mail, we would check the mail and we would get these reply cards and they would say, yes, send me more information. That's all they really had to do is check a box and put it in the mail. And then what we do, Omer, is we would have their, their, we would know their name of their person. So we know the person, we know their title, we had their phone number, we know exactly who they were and everything. And so we would then put together a much more detailed packet of information. And I actually wrote a program in, um, in FoxPro that basically took their all their company information and merged it into these forms. And we would send them a, a much more thorough packet with probably 15 or 20 pages of all of every document that our program produced, our software produced, with their information at the top. So it was totally personalized to them. And then also in there was a three and a half inch floppy disk with the actual program in the packet and that's what we would call our initial evaluation packet and so the pharmacist or the nurse or the owner or whoever our contact was we get this packet of information it was much thicker this time it was really thick and it basically had and we would FedEx it and that's what would, would kind of really you know make them like wow this thing is in the FedEx you know so they would get it FedEx and they would open it up and there would be all this documentation that has their name on it and then there would be a floppy disk and, and in the day that people knew how how to install floppy disk because, you know, AOL starting to get out there and stuff. And so they would put it into their computer and type A call install. And all the instructions were in this document or in the packet. And they would install it onto their computers. And they didn't have to install it on a network. They could just install it on their C drive. And it would come up and it would welcome them and they could begin to enter the patient information if they wanted to and no, they didn't have to and then Jeff my, my partner he would basically call every single company that we send these packets to when he thought they would get it like uh, the next day or the day after that and just you know say hey did you get our packet um, would you like to set up a time for a demonstration and these were over the phone demonstrations this is before uh, GoToMeeting or Citrix or um, WebEx or any of that and um, they would say yeah sure I'll, I'll, I'll take a look at it first, and then if you want to do a demo. So, basically, we did mailings, and that was the one um, area that we got a lot of people that were interested in seeing it uh, based on a mailing. And then the other thing we did is we would go to industry trade shows for our industry, which is the home infusion industry. And there was, I think, two main ones: the um, the pharmacy association, and then the infusion association. And then there were some nurses' associations. So there's probably, actually, probably like. Three or four shows during the course of the year, and we would go to all of them and they would all have uh, exhibit halls uh, you know booth space and we would get a booth and we would set up our our software with big screens and turn them towards them and we had a printer right there we would we would actually um, um, we would brew coffee in our booth and um, these nurses they, they they drank a lot of coffee they would come to our booth and look <laughs> at these printouts and we would get and we, then we would have a sign up sheet right there at the um, at the booth, and we would sometimes get 50, 60, 70, 80, or more than a hundred in some shows, signups of people who wanted more information about the product. So as soon as we would get back from the show, we would fly home and then literally the next day or even that night, we would sit there and enter all this information into um, our systems, and I wrote all these systems for us to do. I wrote it all in Fox Pro, and it would all go in there, and then we would do the same thing we would do as when we would get the lead from the mail you know, the mailers that we did. We would send the exact same thing to these people who were interested through the trade shows, and they would get the packet and then we would you know Jeff would be inundated with demos and he would he would do demos from, you know, seven thirty eight o'clock in the morning to sometimes 7 o'clock at night, you know, the West Coast time and everything. And he was just, he was getting burned out just doing demos, you know. And, um, and they basically would turn into deals. You know, uh, obviously it took time. But uh, the one thing we did, which was really great, which was, you know, huge for us, is this 30-day evaluation disc. Because we would have uh, customers, well, prospects at the time, Actually, start filling prescriptions, loading you know, loading the patient information into our software, filling prescriptions and printing labels because the labels are the key part of um, th- what they do is for the for the drug bags. And just as you know with with pills, you see a label on a pill bottle. Well, our software produced the label that goes on the medication, just like that. And they would f- actually dispense medications using our software before they even bought it, and and we had a thirty day. Um, Uh, Trial period and they would pop up in 30 days and they would get a red screen and it would say, thank you for using CPR plus your evaluation period has expired. Um, Please contact us, you know, to purchase or I don't know exactly what it said, but they would call these people would call us in an absolute panic. Wanting to be, they were like, My patients, they're, they're, the information is in there. I got to get this this prescription out the door. And then, uh, you know, of course, we would forward the, the call over to Jeff and he would pull them up in our CRM that, that I wrote, actually. And we talked about that a little bit, but he would pull them up and he would see exactly, you know, when they got it and what conversations we've had with them so far. And then I had it programmed so we can give them, we would get them into the program for another day, another seven days, another two weeks, another 30 days. Or ninety days, or we had a forever code, which would open it up forever if they're paid in full. If they purchased and paid in full,
0: got it. Okay, so and they knew about this, right? When you sent them the information and the trial version of the software, they knew it was a thirty-day trial. They 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 knew knew how much they would have to pay. Yeah.
1: Yeah, okay. They, yeah. they knew the price. They knew they could even buy it right then and there. We certainly had people that would buy it right away before their, their trial was up. But it's just they would kind of forget about the fact that, you know, they, they didn't buy it or whatever and they're just using it, you know. So and that was just a certain handful of them that would do that. But uh, most of them, obviously, we're calling them. We're following up with them, seeing how their evaluation is going. Did they install it? And have you entered any patients? And we would push them to actually use it.
0: So I think that so far the story sounds too good, right? So you, this almost this sort of this synchronicity and this, this opportunity that you had to, to bump into your neighbor and where you identified this opportunity to build this business. Um, and using that for the hospital as the first customer helped you to really get the product right. And then, Um, you guys were able to turn this into a business and and start to bring more customers on. And there was clearly a need for something like this um, based on what you're telling me because you didn't have to do much selling, right? I think the product basically um, sold itself. Um, And I think somebody listening to this might say, okay, well, that story from the the early days sounds great. And I know Stuart went on to sell this business for $43 million. But there must've been some tough times in between. Right. And so tell me about maybe one example of a tough moment that you guys went through, um, where maybe you didn't think there was a future in this business anymore.
1: Well, The only time that we didn't think there was a future in this business, because there weren't many, if any at all, was one day when when we got back from the accountant's office and they told us how much taxes we had to pay based on how much money we made. And Jeff about flipped out. He couldn't. I mean, this is like the first year, I guess. And because we were making a lot of money, it was very profitable from the get go. I mean, we would bring in, you know, seven, eight, nine hundred thousand on very little in expenses. And then he would say, wait a second, we have to pay three, four, five hundred thousand dollars in taxes, (laughs) you know. So but, you know, everybody has to pay the taxes at the same pretty much rate across the board and everything. It's just we had never experienced that reality because we never had a business like that. So that was I mean, to your question of that was the only time we thought, well, could we really do this is how much taxes we would have to pay, you know, so we got that under control and we had, we had to make quarterly estimates and we, we budgeted that. And, and so, okay, we gotta, we gotta make sure that all this money is getting set aside because, you know, the, the, the tax man's taking a huge chunk of what we're making because we were just so profitable from day one. It was, it was all that was taxed because it's it's what you get taxed on your profit. As far as the, you know, the tough times and the challenges um, going back to the beginning i mean there 's we've had a lot of different stages and phases in the life of the company, obviously being a twenty year old company you can think about the changes that we went through from the very beginning in DOS and character based and you know networks and stuff all the way up to Moving to, um, you know, the web and uh, graphical user interfaces and then dealing with private equity firms and and competition coming after us. But I think, you know, going back to the early days, there were some really tough times that we had with bugs. So you know, since your show is all about software companies and it's all about software, you think about how difficult it is to build good software. And, um, you know, to this day, it is, it's a challenge whatever you're trying to build, you have code and code is not going to be perfect. And we had some pretty bad bugs in in the early days that you know we got through them but we're talking about errors that would come up and just totally freeze the program and they couldn't get their work done. We had one error or one bug in there where we the the program literally deleted their entire patient file. <laughs> and <laughs> and and if they didn't have a backup, they were basically SOL. I mean it was horrible. And it only ha- and it only happened to this one customer like multiple times, but it happened to a couple customers. And um, and you know, and that's all it takes is a couple situations like that and it's it shakes you to the core where you basically your software is controlling this business where they have all of their patients in there, they're filling prescriptions, the patients are reliant on them to get life life-saving drugs of theirs. And then their whole patient file gets deleted because of our software, (laughs) you know? So that was probably the worst scenario. We had some mixing of patients where patients were getting shared, like someone's information was coming up when you brought up another patient. That was a really bad bug we had. And then we just had a lot of errors. And I, you know, I blame myself for, for this because Jeff, you know, he didn't know anything about programming. He knew nothing about computers, (laughs) you know, really. And I was the one that coded everything. And, um, And it was it was hard for me to, you know, get in there and say, I got to fix this stuff. And and I certainly I had a network of people that I could reach out to and ask about things. And there was books in there, you know, but it wasn't like there was no Internet back then, you know, so there's no way you can go on Google and just say, well, uh, you know, search this or whatever. It it was challenging. And, and, um, you know, when when something like that would happen, you'd be like. What are we going to do, and you just have to deal with it? you know so what we're talking about bugs we're talking about errors that really aren 't just your oh well, I got an error, and then i'll just skip it. We had tons of those you know where you just have an error and you skip it and you move on or you know when you fix it in the next update we're talking about just really bad, bad bugs where the program would totally crash. Or um, we had uh, performance issues where it was kind of a bug in the sense that we wrote it or I wrote it, although we had programmers, you know, that came on after myself that did the same thing where it just wasn't written properly. The code wasn't written properly and somebody would go to run a report. And and we had larger and larger customers coming on board with us that had thousands of patients and, and massive files that the report would basically take forever. It essentially wouldn't end. It was like in an endless loop. And then it would take down everybody else because it was using the processor, you know, at 100% or or stuff like that. So uh, I think that was just, that was probably for me personally, anyway, those were the hardest times. And and the the hard thing is about it, it, it wasn't necessarily like, oh, you just fixed it and you're good and you move on because software, Is software and there's just and there's thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of lines of code that that I had written most of it, and that you have to keep track of. And uh, we grew, and when I say we grew in terms of getting more customers, that was absolutely true. But our customers grew, so we would sell a customer. And when they start, first started the program, they might have a couple hundred patients or 300 patients. And next thing we knew in like a year or two, they would have thousands or tens of thousands of patients. And they would do, there was a lot of MA in our, in our customer space. So they would get uh, acquired or merged with companies and they would take their databases and combine them. And the next thing you knew, our program was basically, Having to deal with massive quantities of data that it just wasn 't programmed to deal with, you know, so we had to find dBA experts to come in and really look at how the application was written and how the data was stored and indexes and um you know i don 't get into the the weeds with it but it it was it was tough it was, yeah. that, that was probably the toughest part
0: and, and I think the 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 thing here is that what was the impact of some of those bugs i mean this wasn't like you know my snapchat app isn't working right this was like no this this uh, software is being used to provide care for people who could potentially die if they don't get the right care That's at the right absolutely time Correct, right yep, so that brings exactly. a whole bunch of challenges and i think the other thing maybe might not have uh come come through from what you said is also in those days it wasn't as simple as oh i've got a sass app and i've got a bug let me fix it and and then let me just push it out to my my production servers you had a distribution challenge as well how, how once that you, you fix this code you've got to physically get i guess discs out to all of these customers
1: and, right, and, no, and that's up, a great point. and everything. That is, that is a great point. Now, in the very, very early days, that in the very beginning, the first year or two, we, we, did, we did have to sh- ship, tip, typically ship out an update disk, a three and a half inch floppy. We quickly, within a year or so, had a, a BBS, the, the bulletin board system, that had all of our updates on the BBS. And we would basically make sure that all of our customers had at least one PC with a modem that had a phone line that it's a dedicated phone line, not a fax line, that it would get interrupted. And we would make sure that they knew how to get onto the BBS and download an update. Um, and And we would walk them through that almost before they could really use it. We wanted them to have that capability because shipping disks would take it would take a day and let's say it took us a couple of days to fix the bug, maybe, you know, now a lot of the bugs we we really had to be on immediately and we would fix them literally as they, as they, as they were found, but they were hard to fix. But anyway, so yes, we had to do discs in the very beginning and then we did the BBS. And then obviously after however many years into the, you know, late nineties, early two thousands, we obviously had our website and we had a download uh, off of the website, but, uh, but the BBS was really kind of a in between phases between the three and a half inch floppy and the internet. Yeah. Okay. Um, so
0: it's almost time for us to wrap up, but before we do that, I want to just touch a little bit on the, the set, you know, the selling the sale of the company and, um, so t- tell tell us a little brief just briefly about what was the how did that come about and um what what did you guys have to go through to to sort of make that decision and eventually go and sell to the big company
1: yeah so this it's a it 's a long process of um Getting interest in their, it it was automatic interest in the company, automatic meaning we didn't even reach out to uh, companies and acquirers that were interested in our business. I mean, they would hear about us through um, us just being the, we were the dominant player in home infusion. Um, After so many years, we actually made two acquisitions ourselves. Um, In 2005, 2006, we acquired two of our competitors and got all of their customers over the course of a couple, three, four more years after we acquired them onto our software. So we were rolling up uh, the industry ourselves, but there's always bigger fish. So in markets like this, in larger software enterprise markets, you have, you know, this You know, bigger fish eat smaller fish and then there's even smaller fish. And we were kind of in the middle where there was companies that we could acquire that were smaller than us, but there were certainly bigger companies than us that would be interested in acquiring us, you know, given that everything was what they, you know, wanted in, in a company and price and so forth. So anyway, over the number of years, we were approached by three main types of organizations. Um, the first one was competitors. Um, even some of our competitors about the same size as us. Some were bigger than us, maybe adjacent markets like home medical equipment instead of home infusion, which is a kind of an adjacent market that, you know, they want to combine software into one. So competitors would approach us and want to buy us. Um, and then you also have um, private equity or financial buyers, buyers that basically just want to either put in a lot of money and make it grow and flip it or buy the whole thing out and um, and uh, do the same thing, flip it over time. Financial buyers typically are looking to flip it over you know, five to seven years or something like that. Um, and then, the third type would be a strategic buyer, maybe not a software company, but um, maybe um, a, a company involved in pharma because our our customers were all dispensing high dollar medications, billions of dollars worth of drugs, so the drug companies and the suppliers and uh, manufacturers in the drug space in the pharma and the biotech space so those are the three main areas that we had interest in our company from. And um, we had several false starts, like you said, in in the opening. We had a couple companies that we had engaged and um, for a number of reasons, won't get into the nitty gritty details, but just couldn't couldn't close with them. And it was just not the right fit, you know, overall. So um, in uh, late 2012, one of our uh, competitors who had wanted to buy us for probably Th- two or three years, but they were publicly traded and they just didn't have, they couldn't, they couldn't afford the valuation of the company. They, but they really wanted to buy us. They were actually, um, acquired. So how does a publicly traded company get acquired? Well, they get taken private and it's called a, a take private by a, a private equity firm. So a private equity firm came in, bought all the shares off of the like stock exchange and took them private And at that time, you know, all this information is public on how much it was purchased for and all that because they were public. And so we, you know, we looked at that and we said, well, what's the valuation? Because really everything is based on, you know, what is the valuation of the company? What is getting paid for that? And uh, we saw that it was right about in the range that Jeff and I, my partner and I felt like if we could get that valuation, that we we would sell for that amount. So literally the day after this, uh, this company got taken private the the private equity firm you know they reached out to us and immediately and said hey you probably saw this uh, transaction that we just did with uh, with your competitor you know, are you guys interested in in talking so that got the ball rolling and that was in late 2012 and um so we kind of went back and forth with them and since we had had some failed or, you know, not closed transactions, you know, in the past, we really wanted to go through a process where we had multiple buyers all bidding for the company. And we thought that was the best way to get, you know, the highest valuation and really get the serious buyer Um, to the table. And also they want us to be serious. And when you go out to a process, and this is what I'm talking about is a process where you hire an investment banking firm and they basically represent you and they put together a book and you have a teaser and all these things that uh, we don't have to get into. But essentially you go through a process where you are up for bid with um, companies that are interested in acquiring you. So we did that over the course of, it probably took, three or four months from uh, late uh, 2012 into the spring of 2013 where we had started with about probably 40 or 50 companies that we reached out to with with our teaser that said, you know, this is the company. And if you're interested, you have to sign an NDA. They sign an NDA and then we send them what's called the book. And that's essentially a very thick document about a lot of stuff related to the company, all the financials and the strategic and the and the employees and the management structure and the intellectual property and on and on and on and um, then they decide whether they would like to have a phone call that 's the first step, and then the next step is a face to face you know conference call or conferences where they come into your office, and so you just kind of take it step by step and it took you know from like i said the fall late fall uh winter time i guess of 2012 till literally we closed it was july of 2013 is when we closed with the uh, with the ultimate uh buyer of the business
0: and then so as we t- as i mentioned at the start you sold the business for 43 million dollars um and I, and i assume you and jeff owned 50% of the business each correct no other okay correct so you started this journey sort of with the quote from Jim Rohn talking about set a goal to become a millionaire, not for the money, but what it will make of you. And, and you, you had some, uh, you know, really interesting experiences along the way. Um, but that goal of becoming a millionaire turned into a multi-millionaire. And how did, how did life change for you after that?
1: Well, um, other than the fact that I didn't have the business um, after we sold the business, that's the biggest change. But as far as, you know, my quote and becoming a millionaire, I mean, I became a millionaire back in, you know, the late 90s and early 2000s because we were throwing off so much cash that really the business, you know, grew so much and we were so profitable that Jeff and I were able to really benefit from it all along the 20 years. So, you know, we would, um, uh, we have, we would have great years, we would have great quarters and we would bonus ourselves. And, you know, so we did, we did very well all along. So it was, it was many, many, many years ago when I became a well, one millionaire, you know, or so. And then, um, you know, you have your own personal, um, you know, uh, investments that you have personally, and then the business is really the largest um, asset that you have, but it's not realized until, you know, fully until you either sell it or maybe you pass it down to your kids or something like that. But, um, you know, we, one thing I wanted to kind of, kind of make this point to, uh, to your listeners is we, we built something that we would call the golden goose, and Jeff and I would talk about it from time to time. It wasn't very often, but every once in a while, something would come up and we would talk about the golden goose. And it's like what the golden goose is, is essentially the business being something that just continually gives and gives and gives if, if you take care of it. So you take care of that goose and it produces these golden eggs over and over and over. So what, so what, Specifically, there was three things that really made up that goal and Goose. And the first thing is the product itself. The product, the software has to be good. It has to be great and it has to be working properly. And we talked about bugs and you got to get those fixed and it's got to work right. So you have to take care of the product. That's the first thing. The second thing you have to take care of in your goal and Goose is your employees. I mean, we had such good employees. When we sold the company, Omer, we had 80 employees. So you think about 80 people working for us us, you have to take care of them and and you you want them to do their best for the customers and cuz they're the ones that are making the product better and taking care of the customers. So we had to take Jeff and I had to take care of our employees. That was the second piece of this goal and goose. And then the third piece of course is the customers themselves. They're the ones that's where all the money is coming from. The the money is not coming from investors. The money is not coming from anywhere but the customers. Every dime that we ever got through the course of you know 20 years, which was many millions of dollars, not just the 44, but many millions is basically from the customers. And so we would basically have this philosophy of taking care of this goose, this golden goose. And if we took good care of it, it would keep laying these eggs. Whether we sold the Goose or not, you know? So it was kind of an analogy that, you know, it was kind of corny, but at the same time, it was so apropos to what we were doing. It kept us focused on, okay, we got to take care of this thing. And uh, so, you know, to your question of how have things changed, I mean, not really radically as far as my philosophy and money, really at all. It's more, you know, time uh, now and uh, my kids. And, and more time to learn about things and really not having a business really to, to run anymore.
0: Yeah. That's a great story. All right. Uh, it's time for our lightning round. I'm going to ask you a series of questions and I'd like you to answer them as quickly as you can. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. What's the best piece of business advice that you ever received?
1: I would say it is to work on your business rather than In your business. That's something I learned really early on. And it's very important for your listeners to work on their business and not just in their business.
0: Just, just, just qualify that a little bit. So the point hits home a little bit. So give an example of what you mean by that.
1: Well, and this is going to your next question about, um, you know, a book that I read very early on, very literally The first year I, I was in business in 1993 is when you work on your business, you are you are doing things to improve the business itself so that it can be successful. When you work in your business, you're really just the product itself. You are the software that you created is, is what you're basically just basically going through the motions of servicing the customer and you're essentially just a, an employee, you know? So when you work on your business, you are doing things to grow the business and make it more successful. Yeah. Great. Uh, so what book would you recommend to our audience? Okay. So the, I've got three books real quick. The first one is E-Myth by Michael Gerber. And this is good in the very beginning stages of your business. If you're just starting out, you need to read E-Myth by Michael Gerber. And it, it goes right to this point of working on your business versus we're just working in it. And then as you grow your business, the best book you can possibly read is called Good to Great by Jim Collins. And there's a lot of information in there about how to grow your business and how successful businesses have grown. And then when related to selling your business and exiting and uh, kind of the final stages, I would read How to Get Rich by Felix Dennis.
0: That's, uh, that's one I've, I haven't heard of before.
1: Oh, uh, you have to read that book. That was probably my all time favorite books is how to get rich by Felix Dennis. And it's not a book that just walks you through. This is how you get rich. It is about Felix Dennis and everything he has done. And he's amazing what he's done. And, um, you, you must, that's a must read. What's one attribute or characteristic in your
0: mind of a successful entrepreneur?
1: I think the biggest thing for me is persistence. Um, I know it's uh, everybody says that, and oh yeah, persistence, but it, it is so true. Um, it's so important that you persist, and every day you just do as much as you possibly can do to take care of the business and make it better. So persistence to me is is the number one.
0: What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit?
1: Uh, for me, it, it has to be getting up early and essentially getting in early, getting into the office or getting started early. I think uh, the earlier you get up and the the, the quicker you get your day started, at least for me, um, the better the day goes and just the more powerful you are. So getting up early and getting in there early.
0: Is there a new business idea that you have that now you have the extra time to pursue?
1: Um, you know, I'm interested in looking at CRMs that are for particular niches. So it's kind of like what we built with CPR plus in a way it was a, it was obviously an enterprise application, but CRMs uh, I've always been intrigued by, and there's tons of them out there. And, uh, but for a particular niche where it's customized, um, not saying I'm going to do that, but I I am doing some research in those areas. What's an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know? Well, it's funny funny in a way because a lot of people think I'm this, this genius, especially all these years I had this business, this very crazy successful business and making all this money. And I wrote the software from scratch and everything, but I barely got into college. When I was in high school, I got rejected to the first three or four schools that I applied to. And then my mom was like, you got to get into school. You got to get, you got to get accepted <laughs> somewhere. And um, she took me actually to her alma mater where her and my husband or my dad met. They were a husband and wife. They met there. Anyway, they got me in there, but I barely got into college, which is kind of crazy to think oh, about. Wow. And, and finally,
0: what is one of your most important passions outside of your work?
1: Well, probably the most important passion is my kids now. I mean, I've got one in middle school and one in high school, and it's great to have the time to you know help them learn what they're learning and just be part of their lives. That's probably the most important thing. But I'm also passionate about astronomy. I've really been getting into astronomy, and it's not really an important passion, but it's kind of neat to, to study that and have the time to do that.
0: You know, I always thought about getting into something like that, but I, I never could figure it out. And I found this cool iPhone app the other day which kind of uses um some sort of augmented reality where you can kind of point up at the sky and it kinda of helps you figure things out. But um Yeah, it's uh, great. Yep, I have know, that as well. It's amazing how 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 much easier that's getting. Stuart, mm-hmm. thank you. It's been a pleasure um chatting with you. And you, you as I said, you have a great story. Um and and I know there's there was a lot to cover over what happened in 20 years and uh i'm sure we could have talked a lot more um and maybe we'll do that one day is uh, is is drilled down into some of the other stories over that time um but if folks want to get in touch with you what's the best way for them to do that
1: uh probably they can uh get me on twitter i'm sd crane s d c r a n e or just shoot me an email um, i'm on my email all the time it's stuart@ at StuartCrane.com. Awesome. Stuart, thanks uh, again. And uh, I wish you all the best in whatever you decide to do next. Great. Thanks for having me, Omer. Cheers.